Well, church, it is, it is good to be with you. Uh, it's good to have some of you here in front of me, uh, and it's good to have some of you who are still watching online. If this is your first time watching or you're visiting with us for the first time, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as uh, the lead pastor here at Newbreed Church, and we have been working through a series uh, in the book of Daniel, a series that's entitled Dominion, Faith, and Worship. Uh, Dominion, Faith, and Worship. And so what I'd like to do, for those of you who are here, and if you're watching online, you're welcome to do this as well, I want to read this chapter of Scripture uh, with you. And so if you'll stand wherever you are as we read Daniel chapter 7 together. reads like this, in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel, he had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed, and he wrote down the dream, and here, here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, in my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like, was like a lion but had eagle's wings. And I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. So suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and it was given dominion. And after this, while I was watching in the night visions, suddenly four beasts appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence, thousands upon thousands served him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, the, courts, the court was convened and the books were open. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking, as I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, Their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. 
These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the one different from all the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that looked bigger than the others. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to to change religious festivals and laws. And the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene. And his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people. The holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all rulers will serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly. And my face turned pale. And I kept the matter to myself. Heavenly Father, as we process through this vision that Daniel has, as we, as we think through the kingdom and, and earthly kingdoms in your rule and your reign and your dominion, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father God, help us not to lose the forest among the trees. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, I'm, I'm excited to continue on with you in this series. Uh, let me just say at the beginning, it's good to see some faces in here. Uh, it's as if the joy has been compound, or the Lord has been compounding my joy exponentially. I was excited when we had the opportunity to stream, though I miss seeing faces. Uh, I, I, I'm so thankful for those who are served, but it was strange to primarily preach to a camera. Uh, and so now we're able to open some in limited capacity. I'm excited to see you. I'm excited to worship with you. You guys look great in your face masks. Everybody's following the rules. So for those of you who are watching, don't worry. Everybody's following the rules. Uh, it's, it's good to have you. And I look forward to the day. I really do, church. This just grew the excitement in me. I look forward to the day when we will again see 100 people fill this room. Uh, and we will worship the Lord together as one body. And it's coming. And so we're excited for when... The Lord does that. But as excited I am to have you here, I am even more excited to hear from God through His Word today. I'm excited again to continue on in this series, Dominion, Faith, and Worship through the book of Daniel. And as we examine Daniel 7 this morning, I want us to consider this idea of a glorious end. A glorious end. You know, there are aspects of God's character and action that we are called to reflect and exemplify. We know that. As believers, there are some parts of who God is and what He does that we are called to exemplify, that we are called to mirror. For example, we are called to be holy as God is holy. 
God's holiness is the standard that we are striving for. We want to be holy as God is holy. You know, you can look at the fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And those are, those are fruits that we are to produce in our life, but, but they're more than that. They're also pictures of the very character, nature, and essence of God because that is who our God is. Every one of those fruits flows ultimately from Him who produces them in us. So there are aspects of God that we want to reflect, we want to display, but at the same time, we also know that there are some aspects of God's character, some some aspects of His very nature that we cannot reflect and we cannot exemplify. Let me give you a prime example. Our God is a God who is omniscient, and that means that, that our God is a God who knows everything. And let me, let me be clear, it's not, not that he just knows what has happened. It's not only that. He's not just a Jeopardy expert that can spout off every fact of all of human history. And it's not even just that he knows what's going on at this given moment all across his creation. Our God is, is so omniscient to the point that he knows everything that will ever take place. He is sovereign and he has dominion. And God knows what will happen with utmost surety because he is the one who causes and allows everything to happen. God does not see the world as we see the world. He is not bound by time and space, something that we we can't even fathom being finite beings trying to consider an infinite God. But God, he knows the end. But church, we don't. And sometimes our inability to know the end presents challenges for us, right? Like we, we try to think through where our decisions will lead. We, we all do that. We try to rationalize, if I do this, if I do X, Y, or Z, if, if I pursue, pursue this career, if I do this thing, we, we try to imagine where it will lead. We try to evaluate and try to see where something is heading at any given moment. We try to comprehend how things will, will, will pan out in this world based on the trajectory that we see here and now but church ultimately we don't know and we sense this even with with added urgency during our current state i mean i I look around the world now you look around the world now and and when we see a world that it's in the midst of a global pandemic and some people are taking it very seriously And some, denying logic, are denying its very existence. And we are left asking the question, I think if you're honest, you've asked this question, I have, how will this end? How is this going to pan out? You know, even in our current state, we are being forced to reckon with the realities of systemic injustices that have plagued our country since its inception. We are reminded daily of the unjust and ungodly treatment of minorities and immigrants in this country. And while we hope, even now, as we're seeing something shift in our society, we hope that this leads to real and tangible change, but ultimately we are still left asking the question, how is this thing going to end? And church, despite our most informed guesses or desires, we don't know. We don't know. Because one of God's attributes that we don't have and that we never will have is omniscience. But our God, in kindness and mercy to us and deeply understanding his creation, he has revealed to us the end that matters the most. 
And in Daniel 7, God communicates to Daniel and the saints for all time that there is an ultimate end. And that God has already orchestrated it. He's already worked it out. And it is a glorious end. And so what I want to do this morning uh, is I want, to, I want to examine Daniel 7. I want to walk through this thing again. And I'm just going to tell you, this is going to be a little bit different from some of the sermons you've heard from me before. I said at the very beginning of this series in the book of Daniel, you'll, you'll remember this, I said one of the reasons I'm excited about Daniel is it's going to stretch us. Because there are, there are aspects of this book that I think if some of us are honest, we would read and just kind of say, I don't really get that, so I'm just going to move on. But if we're going to faithfully dive into the book of Daniel, we've got to really try to unpack some of what's going on. And Daniel 7 is riddled with imagery. It's riddled with apocalyptic literature. It's riddled with poetry. And and, and so there is a lot that's going on. And I'm going to spend the bulk of our sermon this morning just trying to unpack the glorious truth of this chapter. I just want you to see what it says. Now, I don't want to be a running commentary so, so after we kind of unpack this text, I want to end by offering you a few things, kind of answering this question of what do we do with this? What do we do with Daniel 7 in light of what we now know? And I'm just going to warn you now that the remainder of the book of Daniel is difficult. It'll be difficult. And so what I will be doing over the next few weeks is trying to first simply help us understand what is taking place. And just so you know, to a degree, even beyond what Daniel understood. Because we can look back and in many cases see what was prophecy to him as history to us. And that's a really cool thing. That what Daniel, what was prophesied to happen, that Daniel was expecting to happen, we can look back and see some aspects of that that are fulfilled. And they're history to us. And so my prayer is that every time we look back and see a prophecy fulfilled in the unfolding of history, that we would be reminded how amazing and how trustworthy our God is. That his word never fails. And again, after we examine the visions, what we'll spend some time doing is trying to apply them to us and what do we do. So again, I want to spend a little bit of time here at the front end just explaining what we read. And so I want to commend something to you again at the front end. I want to commend to you that though we are going to dive into some of the details, even as I prayed, I am continuing to pray that you don't miss the forest among the trees, that you don't miss the beautiful picture of what Daniel is as a whole because you get hung up on minute details. I'm going to tell you at the front, there are people who disagree on some of the interpretations, Daniel 7 through 12. And you know what? That's okay because the ultimate theme still stands. And so I don't want you to get lost in the minute details and miss the forest. I don't want you to get overwhelmed with the details so much so that you miss the main point, but I do want to communicate the details matter. They, they matter. And so I want you to bear with me. God saw fit to communicate this to us, and as difficult as it might be, we should want to understand it because God communicated it to us. And this chapter in particular, Daniel chapter 7, is the most significant chapter in the entire book. One commentator notes this. He said, this chapter has been described as the key to understanding the major themes that run through the entire book. In the canonical sweep of Scripture, He says the significance of Daniel 7 is evident in the frequency with which the New Testament characters and writers make reference to it. Daniel 7 is riddled throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself calls himself the Son of Man, an identity that we will see very clearly here in Daniel 7. 
But this chapter also serves as a turning point in the book for us. What I mean by that uh, is, well, we see this turning point in two ways. You know, first, chapters 1 through 7 in the book of Daniel were originally written in Aramaic. And so this is the last chapter that's written in Aramaic. And what Daniel's going to switch to from 8 through 12 is he's going to switch to Hebrew. But, but this is also interesting because it's the first chapter of what will now be visionary chapters where we recount Daniel's vision. So you have a vision chapter but still written in Aramaic. And so in some point Daniel's trying to communicate through that writing. And what God wants to know is that this book is central or this chapter is central to us understanding the book. And these visions, one of the things that we have to understand is that they are in chronological order. So, so we're starting with the earliest vision that he had in, in 7, and 12 will be the later vision. But we've got to pick these visions up and place them back into the narrative of chapters 1 through 6. So they happened during the stories that are being told in 1 through 6. So Daniel 1, or 7, 1 tells us, the very first verse of our text, in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed, and he wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. And so we know that in chapter 6, Belshazzar was already dead. He died at the end of chapter 4, right? And so, or at the end of chapter, now I'm all confused. He died at the end of chapter 4, yeah. Nope, end of chapter 5, got it. Sorry. And so this is taking place earlier in the story. So we would place this vision sometime between chapter 4 and chapter 6 while Babylon was still in power and Belshazzar was on his throne. So I just want to dive into the vision here. Daniel says in verses 2 through 3, in the vision, in my vision at night I was watching and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea and four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And we have to remember that in the Old Testament the sea often points us to chaos in the world. And so we see at the beginning of the, of, of the book, uh, or the beginning of this chapter, that the beasts are coming from the earth out of a place of chaos. So we know these aren't the good guys. These aren't our friends. And then we are introduced to the beast. And so in verse 4, we read the first beast was, he was like a lion but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground and set on its feet like a man and given a human mind. And so this beast, this first beast, is a reference to the nation of Babylon and specifically to King Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament was also often referred to as a lion. We see it in Jeremiah 4-7 where, where God speaks of the judgment that's coming on Judah, coming from Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar was king and he says a lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his lair to make your land a waste. It's repeated again in Jeremiah 15 and 50, 17, where it's saying the last who crushed his bones was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And before that, it had said Israel is a stray lamb chased by lions. That lion is Nebuchadnezzar. But not only does the lion point us to Nebuchadnezzar, but the eagles actually point us to his army. Because in other places throughout Scripture, the army of Babylon was referred to as eagles. You see it in Lamentations 4, 17. We saw it, you might remember this, because we just studied through the book of Habakkuk. We saw it in Habakkuk 1, verse 8, where it's talking about the Chaldeans, it's talking about Babylon, and God using them as judgment over the nation of, of, of Israel. And it says, their horses are swifter than lepers and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead, their horsemen come from a distant land. Then 
They fly like eagles, swooping down to devour. So we see this first beast as a reference to Babylon and to King Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. But then in verse 5, we encounter the second beast. And Daniel records, suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side and three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. And this beast would be the Medo-Persian Empire. It's the empire that came to power when Belshazzar died at the hands of Cyrus. The empire that took over there at the end of chapter 5 was the Medo-Persian Empire. But we also have some clues that this is who, it, who it's referring to because notice how the beast is told to get up and gorge yourself on flesh. This points us to the fact that they were sent to devour by someone with a purpose. And if you remember, even two weeks ago, we spoke about how Cyrus, or Darius, was used by God to punish the arrogance of Belshazzar leading to the end of the Babylonian Empire. But then even more than that, it was Darius who witnessed Daniel being raised from the lion's den, which we talked about last week. He he saw this happen. As a result, he praised God, and God was going to use him to eventually allow his people to return from exile. We see that in the book of Ezra. So this second beast being the Pado, or the Mado Persian Empire, specifically thinking about King Darius. And then in verse 6, we encounter the third beast. And it says, after this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and it had four heads, and it was given dominion. And this beast, this leopard, this refers to the nation of Greece. It refers to the Greeks, and specifically to Alexander the great. The image of the leopard throughout Scripture has been a, a reference to the swiftness by which devastation is carried out. And this would have been especially true of Alexander the Great, who is known throughout history as being one of the most efficient warriors ever in conquering kingdoms. He conquered the entire Persian Empire in 10 years. And it was fast and swift and effective. But you also get the picture of, of it being Greece because it talks about the fact that that it had four wings and four heads. And we know that in Greece, the nation was split into four parts after the death of Alexander the Great, and four rulers took over in his place. So the third beast being Greece. So we have Babylon first and Nebuchadnezzar, and second being uh, the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, and Darius, and third being the, the Greeks with Alexander the Great. And in verses 7 through 8, we encounter the fourth beast. And what for Daniel was the most terrifying. And it says, after this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. And it was different from all the beasts before it. And it had ten horns. And while I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up from among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it and suddenly in the horn there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly and so this beast that is referenced is the nation of rome the nation of rome which has always been referred to as this nation of iron that it conquers and devastates it breaks whatever it beats up against And you see the breadth of the Roman Empire when you see the ten horns representing ten different rulers. 
But something unique happens there in verse 8. While he's considering the ten horns of the little one, or the, the ten horns, a little one comes up. So as he's considering this beast representing the nation or the empire of Rome, a small horn pops up. And it said that this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human and mouth that was speaking arrogantly. And we learn in verse 25 that this arrogant speech is directed at God himself. Now, we'll come back to that little horn in a moment because it's a very significant part of this text. But, but then, all of a sudden, the scene changes for Daniel. And in, and in verses 9 through 10, we, we, are, we are taken into a divine courtroom. And it reads, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was coming out from his presence. And it says thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. So we see here in this divine courtroom a picture of God himself, the ancient of days, the one who has eternal dominion, takes his seat on the throne. It says his clothing is white and his hair like the whitest wool, and this signifying God's holiness and God's wisdom. But notice the description of the throne. It was was fire. And it says its wheels were blazing fire. And so one commentator notes that this idea of, of, of a seat on top of wheels forces us to consider this idea of the throne as a chariot. A chariot that rules and conquers all in judgment. And it says that fire was flowing, coming out of his presence, again indicating that this court proceeding would be nothing less than one where judgment would be levied. And then there in verse 11, we see the judgment commence, and it is directed at this little horn. He says, I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. And as I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. And so what Daniel sees, what he's, what, he's, what he's envisioning and trying to wrap his mind around is that this little horn is ultimately destroyed by the Ancient of Days. And in these verses, for the first time, the horn is referenced as an individual beast all by himself. And it says that that beast was given over to the burning fire. But then it mentioned that the rest of the beasts, and in this context, it's not referring to the other three beasts. It's not referring to the the lion and, and, and the leopard. It's not referring to the bear. It's referring to the other horns that remain. The other ten horns. And so he says that, that in this moment, right, this beast is overcome by the Ancient of Days, but for a little while, God allows those other beasts to, to maintain some sort of semblance of power, to, to continue to have life. And so that's referring to the other rulers of Rome. Now bear with me, this will make sense in a moment. But then in verse, or at least I hope it makes sense in a moment. But then in verses 13 and 14, something very interesting happens. And I would argue it's the highlight of this chapter. We read, Daniel say, I continued watching in the night visions. 
And suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Church, who is that talking about? Okay, now y'all are out of practice because you haven't been here in a while. You forgot the rules. I bet you the people at home said it out loud. Who is this referring to? Jesus. That's right. Here we are introduced to the Son of Man. And we understand this in light of the New Testament to be Jesus. And we understand who he is even better from this picture when it says that he was coming with clouds from heaven. So as God is showing Daniel this vision, God is painting a picture for Daniel of what we know now reading back in Scripture that this one who would come, this son of man, was one who was clothed in divinity and glory because in the Old Testament, clouds from heaven were very significant because clouds from heaven in the Old Testament point to those two things, deity or a divine nature and glory. We see it in Psalm 18, verses 11 through 14. We see it in Isaiah 19, 1. We see it in Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8, and we see it in countless other places in the Old Testament. So we encounter here for the first time this son of man who is not merely a man, but also one who possesses divinity and glory. We see Jesus enter the throne room of God. And at the judgment of the little horn, his kingdom, the son of man's kingdom, is established. One that will not end. One that is eternal. And so as we start to understand that, I think we start to get a better picture of what is taking place, of, 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 of what it's referring to. And I think we see it even more clearly when we read that text in light of Philippians 2, verses three, or verses beginning in verse 5. Sorry, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, where Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of the servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we know that ultimately Jesus' kingdom was established through his death and resurrection which means that the judgment of the little horn happened at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so God is pointing Daniel, even though Daniel cannot fully understand this, to consider Jesus, this Messiah who was to come, who would establish a kingdom and invite us into it. And church, that's the message of the gospel that we believe. I mean, that's it that we have rebelled against God. We are not in his kingdom. We, we do not deserve to dwell with him in all, for all of eternity. Instead, we deserve the same fire flowing from the throne that the little horn received. We, we, we deserve to be judged and thrown into the fires of hell. And yet God, in his kindness and mercy, sent forth the Son of Man 
who though he, who he, was, he was God, he did not count equality with God the Father as a thing to be grasped. And he emptied himself, he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. And he lived in this world the life that we should have lived, but we can't. And he died the death that we deserve to die. He was buried. God raised him from the dead. And in that triumphant victory over sin and death, the judgment of the little horn occurred and the kingdom of Jesus was established forever. And we are invited into that. And we look back on that and we celebrate it. But for Daniel, this was still so scary. Because he didn't have Philippians 2 to reference. He could not look back on the cross and make sense. So, so he wanted a little, bit more, a little bit more info. And so we pick up reading there in verse 15. I mean, we see his spirit there. And it says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me. And the visions in my mind terrified me. So, so Daniel's trying to get some clarity here. He says, I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all of this. So one of the thousands upon thousands who is serving the Ancient of Days, and he, he says, hey, will you explain this to me because I don't get it. And so he let me know the interpretation of these things. Verse 17, these huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth, like we talked about. He says, but the one... But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. If you wanted a summary of what this entire chapter is about, it's verses 17 and 18. That these huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth, but the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Praise God. But he goes on, he says, then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the, the one different from, from all the others. So you can almost see Daniel kind of tracking. I, I get it. I understand the four kings. I understand the kingdoms. That's, that's not hard for me to grasp. Daniel's like, I knew Nebuchadnezzar. Dude was trifling. Like, I get it, okay? So, so he knows all of this. But he wants to work up to this fourth beast because he knows that there's something strange about this beast. He says he's different from the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, trampling with its feet wherever or whatever was left. But here he gets to it. He says, but I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that looked bigger than the others. He says, as I was watching this, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High for the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. And so this is what, what, what this angelic being responds to Daniel with. He says, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. Ten horns are the ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. But notice this, another king, different from the previous ones, will rise up after them and subdue three kings. And so how is this king different? Well, you, you pick up a little bit more of that in verse 25. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones of the Most Highs. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. 
So the question we are still somewhat left with is who is this little horn? What is this vision about? What, what is it that God is trying to commu- communicate to Daniel? Because you have him saying that he's like the other kings, but he's actually not like those kings. He's not like an earthly king. He's not like an earthly ruler. Who is this little horn? And I would contend to you that the picture that God is trying to paint for Jesus is that the Holy One is Satan himself, the Antichrist incarnate in this world. Now let me pause for a minute because you're like, man, we're getting into some end time stuff. We're going to dive into how I understand end time stuff next week. I didn't have time to unpack it all here today, so I'm going to kind of work you through some end time theology. I told you it's going to be thick, okay? Y'all were all pumped with Daniel and the lions, Din, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're getting in the thick of it, okay? So, so I'm going to work you through some of that, but I, but I believe the picture here is that of the Antichrist. And just so you understand where I come from, and I'll explain this more next week, I don't believe the Antichrist to be a person. I don't believe it to be a single figure that will show up in history and, and that, will, that will rule and reign for a certain amount of time. I interpret the Antichrist in Scripture to be the principalities of hell itself at work in the world at all times. Anything that is opposed to the Lord. Again, we'll flesh some of that out next week. But there's another reason why I believe that this is pointing to the Antichrist, and it's because of one interesting thing that's said at the end of verse 25 where it says that the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. And most scholars understand that we should agree that the way to interpret a time is a year. And so what he says there is that the holy ones of God will be handed over to this little horn, whoever he is, for a time, one year, and times, two years, so you're up to three years, and a half a times, that's six months, so a total of 42 months. Now let me read you something from Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. He says, And I saw a beast coming up from the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its head were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And, and Revelation 13 goes on to paint a picture of of the Antichrist rising up. But then there's something interesting in Revelation 13, verse 5, and it says, The beast was given a mouth to utter boast and blasphemy, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. A time, times, and half a time. Yeah, I don't know about you, but our God is so brilliant. He's brilliant. Then the rest of the text concludes and it says, but the court will convene. And this one, this Antichrist, his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. Praise God. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And so Daniel is left with this conclusion that this understanding that there are terrifying things in this world. There are powers at work that seek to overthrow the the dominion of heaven, though they will always fail. There are powers at work that are opposed to everything that is right and good, just and holy, but there is a time in which they were dealt a death blow. And it was at the arrival of the Son of Man. 
And we know that in the cross, Jesus conquered sin, he conquered death, and he conquered Satan. Though for a little while, we, the, we still, God still allows his work in this world, Satan has lost. The cross has testified that to us. And we are waiting for the culmination of all things at the end of this age. And so this is what Daniel is being pointed to. Now quickly, before we end, I know that was a lot, a lot of information. And I don't want to just be a running commentary. You could have read all this in a commentary. Part of why I'm here is I want to help you think through the question of what do I do with this? I mean, what, what do we do with it? It was, it was a tricky passage. There's a lot of you know, imagery and, and uh, a lot of other scriptures referenced and, and things that, you know, clouds of heaven. And, and, and what do we do with this? Well, let me offer you a couple things. First, we find rest in the arms of a sovereign God in the midst of a broken world. We find rest in the arms of a sovereign God in the midst of a broken world. Because church, what this text screams to us is a truth we have been talking about over and over, that our God has dominion, that he is in charge. And church, the sovereignty of God is not some doctrine that's meant to be argued about in theological circles. It is a truth in which we, we are meant to find hope in the midst of a very, very broken world. And church, this world is broken. You know, just last week, golly, I received the news that another one of our kids from this center here was shot and killed. 19 years old, another one of our center kids. I coached him in basketball. I coached him and his brother in basketball. I've known him for years. And in those moments, it's so tough for me because it brings a flood of emotions with it because it's not just one kid. I've lost way too many kids and every name comes rushing back over me of kids that I have loved and served here in this center that have been shot and killed and their lives have been ended by senseless violence. I won't ask you to do it because it will break your heart, but I keep every one of their ID cards in my office in there so that I don't forget. And it the, the makes me pull these things out and flip through them and see another life lost, another life lost, another life lost. It is a tired. I'm tired of seeing children die. I'm tired of sitting like I did last week and talking with grandmothers and grandfathers and moms and dads and siblings and trying to help this help them make sense out of another senseless murder. I'm tired of seeing day after day another black image bearer murdered on my Twitter feed. I am tired of a world that refuses to acknowledge systems of oppression and injustice. I am tired of murderers going free. I am tired But church, it is in this truth that my God is sovereign where I can find rest in the midst of a broken world. It's not just a theological concept. It is a truth that we are supposed to rest in when we look at this world and say, my God, this isn't right. God is still on his throne. Daniel was forced to look at these beasts that were rising up and the terror that would ensue, but he was forced to reckon with the fact that the Ancient of Days was sovereign over it all. And church, any dominion we think we have is because God has allowed it. Any power we think we have is because God has allowed it. Remember when it was talking about Greece in verse 6? I love this thing. In verse 6 where it says that it was given dominion, I kind of snuck by us, but when God's talking about the leopard that will conquer swiftly, he said, but it was given dominion. It was given by the one who ultimately had it. 
One commentator noted this. He said, pagan empires operate under the sovereign rule of God who raises up and brings down and his purposes include judgment even if pagan empires are his unwitting instruments. And then he says this, and I love it. God's sovereignty is not contingent on our consent. And I love that because it reminds me that my God is in control whether I want to acknowledge it or not. But when we do acknowledge it, we are able to rest in the arms of a God who's got this. Which means that I don't have to. Here's the second thing I want to encourage you to do with Daniel chapter 7. Not just rest. Not not just rest in the arms of a sovereign God in the midst of a broken world. But I also think that in light of Daniel 7, we celebrate the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. We celebrate the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. Verses 26 and 27 speak of what will happen when Satan is defeated. And when Christ's kingdom is established, and it reminds us of the victory that we have in Christ, and it says, but the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away, to be completely destroyed forever. And it says, the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdom under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him, and, and compare this to what what it said earlier in the chapter where it says that the kingdom will be the son of man's but here it says that the kingdom will be given to the people to the one to the the people of the holy one what do we make of this well it reminds us of the incredible nature of our union with christ that if we are in christ and christ is in us then what is his is ours also I mean, pause and consider that for just a second. That if we are in Christ and he is in us, then what is his is ours also. And you see that in Daniel 7, right here, where it says that the kingdom that will last forever belongs to the Son of Man. And then God can, in the same breath, say, and it also belongs to the people of the Most High. Jesus Christ has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He has conquered sin and the grave. And therefore, in Christ, we are more than conquerors too. And it reminds us that in Christ, we have victory. We have victory over death. We have victory over the grave. We have victory over this world. And none of those things will have the last word. And it reminds us that we have victory over sin because Jesus conquered sin. Colossians 2, 13 and 15 through 15. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligation that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Listen to me, church, your victory, I don't care what your favorite internet preacher says, which over the past few months it should be me, by the way. Your victory is not found in your breakthrough. Your victory is not found in what you speak into existence. Your victory is not found in anything you can do or any power you can muster up in yourself. Your victory is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and we celebrate the fact that our God has overcome. 
that our God has overcome. We celebrate the victory we have in Christ. Here's the third thing. I've got one more after this, and they'll be brief. Third thing we do with Daniel 7 is we keep our eyes fixed on the unshakable kingdom that God will usher us into. We keep our eyes fixed on the unshakable kingdom that God will usher us into. Verse 14 reminds us that He has given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom, His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Church, God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. Here they rise and they fall, and no great kingdom remains forever. Some of us need to be reminded of this. Y'all know one day America will not be here. This nation that so many prize as the greatest nation in the world, like Babylon, like Persia, like Greece, like Rome, like the greatest empires this world has ever known, it will fall. But Christ's kingdom is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom will not be destroyed. What is amazing is again what comes there in verse 18 where it says, but the holy ones of the most high will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And if we are marked as one of the holy ones by being united with Christ, by believing in his death and resurrection on our behalf, then again, his kingdom is our kingdom right here, right now. At this moment, we possess that kingdom. Oh, in church, more than ever, we need to be reminded that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. Now, it doesn't mean we don't care about the things of this world. We do. That's why God has left us here. It does not mean that we don't fight for righteousness. It doesn't mean that we don't fight for justice because we do. We absolutely do. But what it does is it reminds us that our ultimate hope is not in things getting better here. Our ultimate hope is when things will be made new there. That is our hope. But here's the final thing that I want you to do with Daniel chapter 7. I'm not going to lie, we're at 50 minutes. I'm proud of myself. I thought it was going to be at least an hour. The last thing we do is we worship. We worship. In every season, in the good, in the bad, in the trying, in the seasons of persecution and oppression, whether on the mountaintop or in the valley of death, we worship because God is worthy. As we see God's eternal plan unfold here in Daniel 7, as we see his dominion unshakable and his kingdom everlasting, as we marvel at the hope and salvation we have in Christ Jesus, we Worship because God is worthy. Church, while we know that the culmination has not fully come, I heard my brother say it just a second ago, the already, not yet. We know that Christ has already conquered. We know that Satan has already been dealt his death blow. But we know that that though it has already happened, it's not yet fully realized. And it will be at Christ's return. But every blessing that we possess as being individuals in the kingdom of God, we possess now. And we worship God. 
God has told us the end of the story. We saw it here in Daniel 7. We know that in the end, God will triumph. And that truth is a singular truth that should produce hope and joy and endurance in every believer. And it is a truth that should drive us to worship. Michael Chase, in his commentary on Daniel, he notes this. He says, the culmination of our response to the reality of Daniel 7 should be worship. And no words are more fitting than John's concerning Jesus in Revelation 1, verses 6 and 7. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a glorious end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are a God who has communicated to us. That you are a God who has communicated his power, his sovereignty. God, we know your holiness and your righteousness that you have made yourself known. And God, I am so thankful that in this passage of scripture that you wanted delivered to the saints through Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, that we are privileged to look and be reminded of the fact that though Satan may rage, though empires may rise and fall, though the, the holy ones of God may be persecuted, that you are a conquering king. And you will not be shaken. And God, if we doubt that for a moment in our lives, I pray that you would quickly fix our eyes on the cross and remind us of the fact that you have already won. But through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you, you, God, you blew a death blow on Satan and sin and death. And Lord, now, even in this life, we... We get to experience that victory. God, help us to run this race with endurance. Help us to worship without shame, believing that through Christ we are more than conquerors and believing that what awaits us is a kingdom that will far exceed our wildest expectations and is better than any kingdom found on this, this earth. So God, to you be praise, and glory, and dominion, and worship forever. For you alone are worthy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, one of the things that I have missed deeply with not being able to meet with you is our opportunity to gather together and to take communion, something that we believe should be done as we gather together as saints, not necessarily as individuals in our home. And so we are privileged to, to come today. And hopefully when you came in, you received a little prepackaged wafer and, and the drink. And we'll, we'll grab those in just a minute. But I want to remind you of what this time is. This time for us as believers is a time where first we just reflect. We marvel at the fact that Jesus Christ has overcome. That though we were sinners, deserved death and deserved hell, that God in his love and mercy has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And as I mentioned in the sermon, that Jesus Christ came and lived perfectly in this world. And he did not deserve death. And yet he willingly went to the cross to glorify God and to secure our salvation. And he died the 
the death of a sinner. He died in our place. And the full measure of God's wrath and anger and hatred of sin was poured out on the spotless son. And he died, was buried and raised from the dead. And in that, our justification was secured. As Paul says, he was crucified for our transgressions and raised for our justifications. And we reflect on what Christ has done for us. One of the other things we want to do during this time is we want to make sure that we are right with the Lord. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds us that many people have eaten and drinking this meal in an unworthy manner. They've eaten and they've drinking death on themselves. And so we want to take a minute and just reflect. Maybe there's some sin that you need to confess. Maybe, maybe there's some selfishness you've been holding on to. You just need to lay at the feet of Jesus. Because the amazing thing about our God is he is faithful to forgive over and over and over again. Now again, this does not mean that you have to be perfect to come to the table or else no one would ever come to the table. But it means that we are, we are in good standing with God. And if you, you're here and you're not a believer, I want to encourage you not to take this meal, but to take Christ instead because this is reserved for those who place their faith in Jesus. But you can place your faith in him today. I'd love to talk to you six feet of separation when this service is over if you want to know more about that but what I want to do is I want to give you just a few minutes to just reflect and spend time with the Lord and then what I'll do is pray and it's a little different than how we normally do it no one's going to come up so what I'll do is, is we'll take out the elements and we'll take them together and I'll walk you through partaking in the elements as we read scripture but let's just take a minute and go before the Lord Heavenly Father, we, we count ourselves as privileged to be counted among your children, to be counted as those who will possess the kingdom, not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And I pray, God, that we will continue to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would have hope, not in the things of this world, but in the fact that you are on your throne and you have overcome thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. We thank you for the grace that was extended at your good pleasure. We thank you for the privilege of walking as sons and daughters of the Most High King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.